You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're discussing American Jewish women and crafting. What does a focus on crafting help us to understand about Jews and Judaism in the United States? How does thinking about crafting help us to re-examine cultural images of American Jewish women? And how does crafting fit within a long-standing history of American Jews' participation in progressive politics and social justice movements? Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. I'm very happy to be joined today by Dr. Jody Eichler-Levine. She is the author of the new book, Painted Pomegranates and Needlepoint Rabbis, How Jews Craft Resilience and Create Community, available now. You can read an excerpt from her book in the upcoming December issue of The Revealer at therevealer.org. Hi, Jody. It's great to chat with you. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you. So Jody and I have known each other for several years, and I've been a big fan of her writing for a long time. Uh, her first book, Suffer the Children, Uses of the Past in Jewish and African-American Children's Literature, greatly influenced my own thinking about religion in America and my first book. But I'm especially excited to talk to you, Jody, about your new book, in part because my own mother is a Jewish woman crafter, and I'm telling you, I could picture her on so many pages of your book, which signaled to me that you were really on to something about how deeply meaningful crafting is to many people. And reading it, I have to tell you, gave me some insights into my mom that I had not considered until I read your book. And for that, I'm very grateful. Oh, well, thank you so much. I feel like, you know, I should charge a therapy fee or something, you know, that'll be five cents to these like Lucy and Peanuts for bringing families together. In all seriousness, um, your words mean so much to me, both because I I so uh, respect and love your work. And also because the most moving part of writing this book was getting to meet people in their homes, getting to mm. really experience their worlds. And I couldn't interview every Jewish crafter in the United States because there are quite a lot of them. So it really means a lot to me that this resonates with uh, your mom. And I've seen pictures of her amazing work online. Yes, yes, yes. I like to share it publicly. Well, so let's start, I think, the conversation with what I imagine might be uh, many listeners' first question. So your book focuses on various forms of crafting, mainly but not exclusively the fiber arts like quilting, knitting, sewing, and embroidery. So what does a focus on crafting help us to understand about American Jews and American Judaism? So... By focusing on craft and material culture, we get at several things. One is we get at a sense of process. In the book, I'm arguing that Judaism is a process, not a fixed thing, right? Mm -hmm. So you're not looking at a container where things just fit into Judaism. You're looking at a horizon, how mm -hmm. things move towards Judaism. And so by going to craft conventions and sitting with people as they make their objects, we're getting at the lived texture, sorry about the pun, of everyday uh, Jewish American life. So that's one important thing. And when we get at objects, um, we're getting at a whole lot of things. We're accessing people's families 
people's memories, Hmm. people's use of objects, not just in rituals, but also in activism and other contexts. So focusing on craft gives us a whole new vantage point on American Judaism because it's really in the details that we can get at lived religious life. That's great. And yeah, I mean, there's so many great stories about how families use objects and why things become meaningful and what people do with them. And then I think the other thing that I took from your book in relation to, you know, what does crafting illuminate is that it seemed to be that it allowed for you to uh, focus on American Jewish women in particular and illuminate how women have been contributing to Jewish communities in various ways. Absolutely. In some ways, it's almost an unabashedly second wave feminist kind of book. Even though there are some men, there were some respondents to my survey who were genderqueer, and I really hope to do more work on that in the future. But by focusing on a lot of women's experiences, we're looking at a whole other side of Judaism. It's wonderful, of course, that women are rabbis now, and I'm so glad that's true. Some of the people in my book actually are are rabbis. But the the great thing about craft is that it gets us out of a synagogue-focused model of Hmm. looking at American Judaism, Mm -hmm. and it gets us into other spaces like the home, which scholars, you know, like Deborah Dashmore and Barbara Kirshenblatt-Gimlet and others have looked at for, for decades. But we've tended to focus on cooking. We haven't always looked at how creativity is really, um, not that cooking isn't creative, sorry, I just pictured like <laughs> dozens of chefs throwing things at their <laughs> screens. But, but getting at material culture really connects with the sense of touch and religion, which isn't always thought about either. Well, what you said makes me think of my mom, uh, you know, the Jewish woman crafter in my life who has said that, um, you know, she doesn't love cooking because she doesn't want her creative energy to be spent on something that uh, others are just going to eat. So perhaps there's um, something there, but I'm sure there are many crafters who enjoy doing both. But I want to stay with um, a bit on, on Jewish women as a theme here. And so when we think about Jewish women, especially as they've been portrayed in popular culture, in American popular culture, there are some longstanding cultural stereotypes about Jewish mothers, Jewish grandmothers, and and Jewish women more broadly. How would you say that your book maybe helps us think differently about the cultural image of American Jewish women and their place either within American Judaism or maybe within the country more broadly? One of the things I do in chapter one of the book is try to find a reading of crafts that makes space for excess. So the very first chapter begins with a handkerchief where a woman named Heather Arakonofsky is recalling an experience with her grandmother around the issue of fat, right? Saying fat is, um, fat is good. They're reclaiming body, women's body image. And that made me think a lot about the fact that Jewish women are often stereotyped in terms of excess. So the Jewish mother is partially stereotyped because she's so big, she's so Mm -hmm. um, loud, pushy, taking up too much space. That's one of the criticisms of Jewish American women. And I interviewed another artist named Laurel Robinson, and she brought up the artistic concept of horror vacui, the fear of an empty space. And... I see in these women who are not afraid to take up space with their objects, to 
you know, if, if you've got a pillow, it should be embroidered, right? You should add to mm. it. You should have more pillows. You should have more quilts. I see something actually quite powerful and resistant in that willingness to take up space with objects. And that can be fraught too. But I, I feel like by looking at women in that mode, also looking at women activists um, like Jaina Zweiman, who was who's Jewish and was the co-founder of the Pussy Hat Project. Mm-hmm. So that's another example of women not being afraid to take up space. She explicitly mm-hmm. described that as a tukun lum to the max project. And so I really think there is something feminist and very moving about Jewish women not trying to shrink themselves down not hmm. trying to avoid being the Jewish mother or the Jewish American princess who shouldn't have objects because she's too acquisitory. Um, I think there's some power in saying, hey, we're here. Our stuff matters. Right, right. That's great. So connected to that, I want to quote uh, a couple things from your book uh, related to this topic. So you say, quote, an overwhelming number of my interviewees and survey respondents describe creation as a requirement of their existence. And then later you say, quote, one survey respondent wrote, creativity is crucial to our survival as humans, and we especially need it as Jewish women. And I'm wondering what you make of those statements. You know, what do you think that that means when she says we especially need it as Jewish women? I, you know, the the interesting thing about that quote is it's from the survey, so I don't have good context for it. I will Mm. say, though, that I think in some ways it's a Virginia Woolf kind of moment. I think creation gives women a room of their own in Hmm. a distinct way. One of the crafters, artists who I interviewed is a mother of young children. And she actually made a lot of art about that experience. And she talked about that feeling after her children had grown up a little bit of returning to her studio, of making that space again. Hmm. I think that goes for women who are not mothers as well, very significantly. Hmm. So We know women are socialized into caring roles. So it's not an essentialism thing, right? It's Mm -hmm. not, oh, women are naturally caring. But we know that, you know, girls are, little girls are talked to different in academia. Women do a lot of service work, all of these things. And creation is this thing that can be very moving and isn't always about caring for someone else. It's, it can be, right? You can Mm. make a scarf and give it to someone, Mm -hmm. but the act of being creative, of saying, I want to use this color now. I want to use that lyric in my song, right? Um, that is also a way of experiencing pleasure in one's own selfhood. And heaven knows women Mm. are not always good at getting to experience pleasure, right? Um, we're, we're supposed to be, Mm-hmm. We're supposed to circumscribe ourselves in all kinds of ways. So I think there's something about these activities of getting to make something that feed a real desire for camaraderie, for just glorifying in textures and colors. There's something really vital about that. And it's it's really tactile um, and it's really visceral. Mm-hmm. That's really powerful. And and I think what you're describing now here comes through in the book so strongly in your sharing other people's stories about why crafting matters so much to them. And then you also 
include several beautifully written stories from your own life in the book. So I'm wondering, since we haven't really talked about you yet, um, if you could share in what ways this subject is one where you have had a sense of personal investment and and if you think that shaped uh, any aspects of the book. I think it certainly did. I probably wouldn't have come up with the idea for the book uh, if I weren't a knitter. I actually <laughs> learned to knit in graduate school despite people trying to teach me things when I was younger. My best friend taught me to knit in graduate school. And it was this wonderful way of having something tactile that would actually exist because it felt like my dissertation would never actually (laughs) exist. And then um, before I... Just before I graduated, I noticed that there were lots of books about knitting and spirituality. Hmm. And that was the beginning of this project of of thinking about, you know, how are these things connected? How are religion and crafting connected? Hmm. For me personally, objects have been very important in my family and very crucial at big junctures of my life. Hmm. So my mother is actually a painter. Mm. Um, she, uh, was trained in oil painting, uh, pretty young and she actually, she's an amateur painter, but she made beautiful paintings my whole childhood and taught painting. Mm. So I always had this example of a woman in my life who created things and my grandmothers both did needlework, which is in the book. Right. At the same time, I have a fraught relationship with objects too, um, sometimes, I feel overwhelmed by them, and mm-hmm. uh, we have we have a tendency in my family to either cling to objects or to discard them rapidly, uh, which hmm. my grandmother did, and it appears my nine-year-old daughter does too. So I was always really interested in this way that craft and objects hold so much of our identities and uh, are so powerful emotionally, right? Why does one person cherish their family um, matzah cover, like the one in my family that's been there for years, why does one person cherish that and another person not care? And that's right. that's been a big investment for me. And I have certainly found that at difficult points in my life, like my experiences with illness, with being a cancer survivor, and yeah. um, honestly, this year <laughs> during the pandemic, I've found sure. that I turn to knitting in times of joy, but also in times of challenge. Uh, There's Hmm. something um, about being in that flow state. There's actually science on this. It's been studied many times by neuroscientists that the flow state you get into with knitting, where you're absorbed but not overwhelmed, and you just kind of get into a meditative state. And uh, that's, I think, really powerful for people. Yeah, yeah, no, it ma- it makes total sense. I can picture it. So you write in the book that in some ways, when you would meet with various people and go to crafting conferences, that you were often an exception within the space. That many of the people you met were senior citizens, and I'm wondering if you have some thoughts about why you think most of the people you met are senior citizens. You do mention in the book that. You know, one aspect that is a common part of Jewish camping for Jewish adolescents is arts and crafts. But it seems that many of the people that you encountered tended to be older. And I'm wondering what you make of that and if that suggests anything to you about future trends in American Jewish life or if thinking about crafting illuminates anything about um, where we're moving in terms of a Jewish future. 
Absolutely. To some extent, that was a conscious choice. So the mm. first fieldwork site that I selected um, was the Pomegranate Guild of Judaic Needlework, which was founded in 1977. And their model was really about meeting in people's homes, sometimes during the day, sometimes in the evening. But it was the kind of model similar to Hadassah or a synagogue sisterhood that was really important for women of that generation, women who were adults in the 1970s and early 1980s and are now often senior citizens. So to some extent, I actually wanted to speak with older women. Hmm. I think that ever since Barbara Meyerhoff's Number Our Days, which is just one of the most important works of anthropology and focused on senior citizens, we haven't always looked at older women in Jewish culture in part because hmm. of the continuity panic, right? Hmm. And so I wanted to hear those voices that aren't always listened to because Jewish American culture is so focused institutionally on continuity, is hmm. so concerned with things like the camping movement and mm -hmm. wanting there to be uh, more Jews in the world, to put it bluntly. I think we're missing something as scholars when we don't also listen to the voices of older people. I think that's absolutely essential. And I don't think crafting will go away in the Jewish future. I just think it will happen in different ways. Hmm. The Pomegranate Guild in particular has uh, sometimes struggled to reach younger people. And I think that might have to do with their model. Although now that they're meeting on Zoom in some occasions, I wonder if that will change. Hmm. A lot of people, you know, younger women, women who craft of my generation and younger are doing this thing where they're working, sometimes they're raising a family. The idea of having time to go and sit in someone's living room and mm -hmm. sew for an hour or two while delightful, um, <laughs> I would give just about anything to do that right now, sure. is not something people often have time to do. I, I got to go and sit in with an Indian circle because it was my job, right? Mm -hmm. um, I got to go and do ethnography with a local knitting circle because of that. But otherwise, I couldn't have made the time. So I think that there's various things about life that will lead to different ways of crafting in community. We're already seeing that with the pandemic um, and with things like, for example, the Pussy Hat Project, um, which was co-founded by Janice Wyman, like I said before, the internet created a tether for people, even though they weren't physically in the same mm. space. So Jewish yeah. crafting will continue, but it might look different. Well, you know, on, on the point that you've been making here, one of the things that I really appreciated about your book, and I think this, for me at least, had some queer political resonance, was that you, you made the point that there are many ways to contribute to a Jewish future, and having babies and raising children isn't the only one, even though Jewish communities have put such emphasis and pressure on that as the main way to ensure a robust Jewish future. But, but you, I think, really make clear that the that creating things, the act of creating material objects that will be used and given to others and passed around or passed down, that this is another way and an important way of contributing to a flourishing Jewish future. Yes, absolutely. And thank you for noticing that in the book. I wanted that to be there, but uh, because I was trying to write in a non-theoretical way, I'm glad it came through. As you said that, I realized it's a funny continuation of my first book, mm. because my first book, which was about children's literature, questioned 
how we focus on children as a telos, as a future. And I actually was really influenced by our mutual uh, friend, Laura Levitt, and others who write about writing and the future. So mm. it's interesting that in the second book, I really did find myself thinking about creativity as a form of, of creation that isn't just about, you know, biological generativity, right? That we are creating culture and pushing life forward through stitches, right? It's not always about children. And I, I really think that's really important point in all of this. And that that's why the arts have always been so important. Yes, that's great. So you mentioned also in, in your previous answer about, about the Jewish future that uh, one of the creators of the Pussy Hat Project for the Women's Marches and, and, and everything was, was a Jewish woman. And you title one chapter of the book Tikkun Olam to the Max, uh, Tikkun Olam meaning to repair the world. And the chapter goes on to discuss Jewish women who use crafting as a form of activism or craftivism, uh, as you say in the book. So could you talk just a bit about what crafting has? has to do with repairing the world and social justice. Absolutely. I found that a lot of women in different age groups talked about how by creating things for other people, they were repairing the world. That was the case with groups that created objects for charity, and almost all of these groups create objects for charity. Hmm. In Jewish tradition, of course, charity is called tzedakah, which is, doesn't translate as charity, it translates as, as justice, righteousness. Mm -hmm. So sometimes that's about keeping people warm, quite literally, stitching the world back together, and sometimes it's much more about crafting as a statement, as a way of showing your presence. So the term craftivism was coined by Betsy Greer in 2003, and it's become a really visceral way for Jews to Jews and lots of other people to attack social justice issues in a way that's also fun, that's hmm. also communal. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important. But a lot of people with all the activism we've seen this year have talked about burnout, have talked about the emotional side of activism. So these craftivist kinds of objects where you make something really help with that experience. They, they give you both a memorial, right? So the pussy hat is mm -hmm. now going to be in some museums, right? Just like RBG's collar. Mm -hmm. the, having these kinds of objects is a symbol of activism that has happened, that it doesn't just fade away. And it's also a link to keep people together, to keep people motivated. So it's true. Like the pussy hats themselves did not directly, you know, cause anything that happened in this last election. But it's actually very interesting, looking back four years later, uh, from that moment mm -hmm. to this one, and thinking about, okay, it's, it's actually a lot like the stitches in a quilt, right? It's, it's never one action. Mm -hmm. The whole idea of activism is that it's additive. It's about, you know, person after person after person, march after march after march. Yes. And I think that knitters and sewers and, you know, artists are really attuned to that because the, the their process so mirrors the activist process. You don't just wake up hmm. and have a blanket. Blankets yes. take, you know, can take years. So it's about having that that patience and resilience. 
Hmm, that's great. Thank you. And and what you just said there also makes me think of just one of the takeaways from your book that I think you make quite clear that if we are thinking about American Jews and we only look at what's going on in synagogues or traditional religious life, quote unquote, that we're going to overlook some really interesting things that are going on. And one of them is how some Jews use their sense of Jewishness and Jewish identity and crafting to improve the world. And and that if we don't look at that, we're actually missing a full, interesting capacious picture of what's going on in American Jewish life in the 21st century. So we're out of time. So I want to thank you for this great book that's now a material contribution to the world and for chatting with us today. You can find an excerpt from Jody Eichler-Levine's newest book, Painted Pomegranates and Needlepoint Rabbis, How Jews Craft Resilience and Create Community in the upcoming December issue of The Revealer at therevealer.org. And you can purchase Painted Pomegranates and Needlepoint Rabbis wherever you currently buy books. I will also add that if you'd like to read a beautifully written article about religion and Disney during the pandemic, check out Jody's article from The Revealer's June issue entitled What We Miss When We Miss Disney World. I'd like to thank our guests, Jody Eichler-Levine and our production editor, Anna Donch. I'm Brett Crutch. This is our last episode of 2020. We will be back in early 2021 with all new episodes. Until then, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Anna Donch. If you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org.